Welcome back to Conscious Founders. I'm your host, Xander Ford. Today we talk with Dr. Skip Rizzo, the godfather of virtual reality for healing. He is the director of the Medical Virtual Reality Lab at the Institute for Creative Technologies, University, Southern California. So Skip's been doing virtual reality for mental health uh, concerns since the early 90s. He's been applying virtual reality as a tool early on uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and he's had just huge successes uh, with this program, which is uh, now deployed across the VA in more than 50 Veterans Affairs hospitals. He's using it for service members in all sorts of sectors, in the fire departments, in uh, police uh, academies. He's also doing really interesting things with proactive um, exposure therapy to prepare uh, service members and others for potentially um, traumatic experiences so that when they do approach um, these experiences or similar ones that they are prepared and they don't have quite the same mental shock. It's a, a really fascinating program he's developed and I'd say one of the largest most successful um, clinical evidence-based programs out there uh, in virtual reality. So back in the 90s when Skip started with this technology, you know, you had graphics that were pixelated, raw, in sort of these blockman cartoonish formats. Headsets were tens of thousands of dollars and the research frameworks for doing this kind of clinical evidence-based work were brand new using these technologies. Skip's titles include Director, Medical Virtual Reality Lab at the Institute for Creative Technologies, Research Professor, the Department of Psychiatry and School of Gerontology, which if you, like me, didn't know what gerontology is, it's the study of aging populations, their impact on society, and uh, really looking forward at how people age and their cognitive functions uh, change over time. While VR is certainly the focus of Skip's lab with uh, regard to psychiatric research, his lab is definitely going beyond the standard uh, clinical-based randomized control trials of known solutions. He's the kind of person, and uh, I think he sets the tone in his lab, that they're constantly pushing to the next new thing. They're constantly exploring, trying, adjusting, exploring some more. It certainly has the, the research and exploration lab um, that is uh, very exciting. It's a very exciting place to be. He's Skip is both a futurist and also a pragmatist, which you'll hear in our talk later how practical he really is. And that's, I think, a pretty rare combination. Oftentimes, um, visionaries are, are sort of far out in the future and, um, you know, they might forget where to put their car keys and uh, they might not be able to, to <laughs> have a lot of normal functionality um, in everyday life because they're living way out in the future. But Skip's a person who has this real practical approach, but also sees the future and embraces technologies for clinical applications. Um, personally, I was really touched with Skip's big heart. He is certainly in this work 
because he loves to help people. And his work in PTSD is addressing a segment of Americans who are often hard to bring into a therapeutic setting. The appeal of playing a video game and the familiarity of interface is intriguing enough to some veterans and younger populations um, to at least come in for a sample, to try it out. And um, in our talk, Skip mentioned the dryness of some of the post-deployment checklist type intake forms and how they might not actually be the most effective at surfacing some of these deeper issues affecting returning soldiers. And to me, this really illustrated to how human Skip is. He not only um, holds in mind the end goal, which is to heal people, but he's also looking for places where valuable diagnosis data might slip through the cracks and he's building processes and tools to be sure and capture, analyze, and then skillfully apply that info to a um, programmatic approach of healing. Uh, we talked about the importance of a skilled therapist and how that can really uh, make an impact with a, a genuine connection with a client and the ways software can detect emotional patterns in voice and face and posture. Um, what's interesting is these uh, diagnosis hints are talked about, studied, and taught in many of the schools for therapists. However, uh, collecting large sample sizes and being able to accurately run verifiable uh, data-driven stats on these data points has to my knowledge, not really been possible prior to the emergence of this machine-assisted process. One of the other areas that machines can assist in is their neutrality. So an artificial intelligence-driven therapist may have a bias, but that bias is written into the software. It's likely going to be consistent, predictable, and modifiable, whereas human biases for evaluation are often unpredictable dependent on many internal and external variables within the therapist and outside of the therapist. One um, finding which was not anticipated apparently by his work but certainly valuable is how returning soldiers are more likely to reveal the truth about their condition to a virtual human with an AI-driven piece of software rather than a real live human. These findings are really promising for the future. So in summary, Skip and his lab at USC are both pioneers in using VR for mental health, and they are explorers, riding and pushing the cutting edge as it's moving forward. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and really look forward to hearing about the new findings from their labs. Stay tuned. Who knows? Maybe some of their technology will be coming to a therapist near you soon. So that's it for me. Enjoy our conversation. And as always, stay healthy. Hi, Skip. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you too, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> Pleasure it, having you over. Right on. Thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah. Um, we'll start out. Maybe tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and, you know, uh, give us the lowdown. Yeah. Well, um, first off, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, but also have done work in neuropsychology, working in brain injury. And, um, you know, I guess uh, my current role would fit in a category of being the director of a lab at the University of Southern California Institute for Creative Technologies. We're called 
the medical virtual reality lab. Now, I would have chosen the term clinical virtual reality because I'm not an MD, but our director thought medical would be a, you know, have a little more cachet. <laughs> yeah, it carries some gravitas. Yeah, but we do have an MD that works with us, uh, Dr. Brett Talbot, who is uh, really on top of his game and he's added a lot to the lab and we're a good mix of um, you know psychology medicine computer science graphic art uh, you know wide range of disciplines and somehow we all get together and bang stuff out and your technology powers brave mind brave mind is one project it's probably the project that's most known because it addresses something that everybody uh, kind of is paying attention to and that is post-traumatic stress disorder in returning service members and veterans but um, you know we've been around for 20 years 22 years and uh, have developed applications for testing kids with attention deficit disorder uh, for developing job interview training with people on the autism spectrum developing game-based physical and cognitive rehabilitation therapy um, things like using the connect to capture body movement and to make very boring and repetitive physical therapy activities or occupational therapy activities fun and engaging. Um, and then the other area of our work uh, has involved the use of virtual humans for a range of um, purposes, you know, some level of artificial intelligence, not always a deep level, but enough to create virtual humans you can have a credible interaction with for a range of purposes like for one example it's pretty intuitive um, the work that Brett Talbot is really driving um, is with developing virtual patients pa virtual humans that play the role of a clinical patient that novice docs or social workers or psychologists can practice with so they can basically screw up a bunch with a virtual patient before they get their hands on a live one and uh, you know so that you know that's an intuitive thing you know I think we all get that uh, practicing your interaction skills in a safe environment with a piece of software might have value for improving your skills doing that with a real person in the real world yeah it's quite a breadth of computer assisted therapy products um, it's really I, so, so in doing my research, I'm still pretty new to the game, actually. Um, but if VR were like a mafia, I'd think of you as like the Godfather. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> here I am on the Godfather's porch overlooking LA, and he's telling me about you know the history of VR. You you're so far in the future. You know these products they they're deployed in the field across. I heard 50 VA hospitals for for Brave Mind deployed in the. Out in the field too, right? And uh, um. yeah, we, you know, we we really focus on on trying to get stuff to escape the lab. You know, mm -hmm. not just mm -hmm. cool research projects. You know, you bring people in and do demos. Really put a lot of effort into collaborating with hospitals, VA centers, university clinics, and a wide web of collaborate collaborations with um, you know people working in the trenches that might not have the capability to develop the technology themselves but they certainly want to use it and be a part of it so we have great collaborations and you know this whole godfather thing uh, it got referred that way once before <laughs> <laughs> and it's like well you know i think honestly 
you know, I, I play a part, but the field has many godfathers. Uh, well, you started in the 90s, right? You yeah. started in the 90s. 96 was the birth of the lab, yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people around the world that had the same vision from back then, you know. Uh, you know, back in those days, um, you know, the vision was the same as it is today, you know. Create emotionally evocative environments or systematically controllable simulations or you know a whole range of ideas for how we could use simulation technology um, and use it for clinical purposes or mental health or rehab um, the problem back then was uh, you know it was still a pipe dream you know the technology really was not wasn't too mature I mean if you ever try any of the tech from the mid 90s uh, you know, head-mounted displays that weighed a ton and had poor resolution, computer graphics that looked like, you know, geometric forms rather than anything with textures, um, really limited user interfaces, um, uh, the cost of the equipment, the complexity of the software needed, the lack of integration of various pieces of software. It was a friggin' mess. Um, but the vision was sound. And so, you know, people... You know, our, in our group, uh, people in Europe, Giuseppe Riva, uh, uh, Christine Batella, David Rose, uh, you know, these are people that have been around, you know, Hunter Hoffman, Joy Defiti, Barbara Rothbaum, I, I can name a list of probably 100 people that saw the, the view towards the future back then. And we all certainly thought it would happen a lot quicker, the technology mm -hmm. mature faster. But, you know, we hung in there. And the good news from all that is, even though, you know, it, the field moved in fits and starts, we did evolve a scientific literature on VR usage for clinical purposes that I, I, would, I would venture to say is probably the most evolved and comprehensive scientific literature of any VR use case. Literally thousands and thousands of studies. And they're not all the, the perfect randomized control trial, they're not all the, the giant sample size studies, but the aggregate findings of all this work, you know, demonstrated that, you know, to the current day that there's something to this, you know, that VR and, and augmented reality, mixed reality, all the, all the realities, um, add some value when thoughtfully applied for a clinical purpose and you know I mean that's a uh, that brings us to the current day where you know Jesus I mean you know I was just at CES and it was like you know again kid in a candy store just new innovations you know some people complain that you know VR is not moving fast enough or you know even worse you know somebody wrote an article VR is dead you know reminded me of uh, you know people saying in 1970 rock is dead you know yeah right okay um, you know if, if all the innovation in VR stopped tomorrow right now where we're at with the capabilities of the technology we're, we're good to go in clinical apps I mean we can still do great stuff for many years now, certainly the technology is not going to fold up its tent and go away. Just because it hasn't been as big of a market splash in the gaming area as some people hoped it would, the technology is evolving. People are getting better at using it, designing systems that are usable um, and emotionally evocative and compelling. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of things to work on, 
but at this point, I'm pretty excited about uh, where the field has come in the last 20 years and where it's going to go in the next 20. Yeah, that's a good um, segue into how do you think your technologies, more virtual reality healing technologies, are going to integrate into the healthcare system. We touched on this question a little, little bit earlier on our phone call, where I was asking about how, what are the barriers to getting more virtual reality, potentially even as like an ICD-9 code, you know, in in for treatment purposes because it's uh, it's such a powerful tool. Certainly for PTSD, it's been proven out, but in, in other therapy um, uh, settings as well. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, it's a in healthcare. It's there's a lot of factors that that play into whether something gets adopted and becomes widespread standard form of treatment or assessment or diagnostic tool, whatever. And it really requires the science, you know, in order for something to become, be considered evidence-based, you have to have, you know, there's sort of a hierarchy of scientific studies that have to be done, um, you know, starting with initial user studies and small sample size studies without control groups, all the way on to full-on randomized controlled trials where it's, you know, the real science. And, you know, we're incre incrementally moving in those directions and showing it, but the, the challenge is people in clinical fields oftentimes 20 years later are still doing the same things they learned in graduate school. It's a real problem. Um, and when you added technology into the mix where some people are enamored with the technology and they're excited to be part of a, a visionary, you know, effort looking to the future. But other people, particularly in clinical areas, are cautious mm -hmm. or, you know, skeptical. And, you know, that's okay. Uh, a certain amount of healthy skepticism is what drives good science. Um, and so there's a persuasive factor that's going on where... You know, in, in PTSD is one example. I mean, there were a lot of old school PTSD people that thought what we were doing was crazy, that we were going to hurt people, that we are going to re-traumatize people by putting them in simulations of the kinds of places that they were initially traumatized in the real world. Um, you know, we had a lot of pushback by, you know, the elders in the field. And, you know, okay, that's, that's all right to have... Um, have a little bit of that. Sometimes it makes you work harder to prove <laughs> prove your case and prove they're wrong. Um, but, you know, eventually when you collect enough data and you show enough positive findings, um, and I'm feeling very confident right now because uh, just yesterday I got word back on a very large randomized controlled trial that's showing very positive results. I can't discuss them because it has the, the co-authors say we have to have it go in for submission so it's kind of under wraps but i'm feeling very confident that the force of the research is now showing particularly in ptsd that you know it is at the very minimum as good as the best evidence-based approach but it has added features so if we're in the ballpark that you know it's as good as the best treatments that are out there but we can show added value in the sense that maybe we can draw more people into treatment 
because it's being done in this, if you will, sexy fashion, you know, this cool, hip technology, whatever. I don't care, you know, if we can get more people to seek treatment that wouldn't ordinarily want to go do the straight, talk to a shrink kind of therapy, then that to me is a success as long as we show at least equivalent uh, results. And that's really where we're at. In some cases, we show a little better, but it's not a horse race. You know, I think it's a matter of understanding your clinical population and providing them with options that appeal to them and that they can resonate with. So part of the data is showing that um, people prefer, when they're given a choice, they prefer VR over the traditional format. They would choose that first. Um, younger populations may also have more of an interest in, um, in participating in this way. Um, you know, a lot of times people are, are, they do get excited. We've had veterans say, oh, I can do virtual reality to fix my PTSD. It's I can play video games, you know. And it's like, okay, let me just describe what you're going to be doing. <laughs> it's not about playing a video game. It's about going back and confronting and processing your worst memories, things you've spent all your time avoiding, trying to avoid thinking about or going to places to remind you of it. And, um, but they still come in and they do find out that, you know, therapy, it's hard medicine for a hard problem. Um, but as they go through it and they have the shared experience where the clinician is actually constructing in real time the simulation that they're going through, we're starting to see patients reporting, I felt more of a bond with my therapist because they can see what I went through. They're helping me to go through it. And so you start to see all these other added benefits, but it's still hard work. There's no magic uh, formula to make fixing these kind of psycholo deep psychological uh, challenges. Uh, there's no way of making it easy. Uh, there's hard work involved. VR may draw people in, though, that would normally say, hey, I'm not going to talk to somewhat behind the ears therapist who's never been to war. You know, what the hell could they know about my experience? And that's a common thing that you hear with vets. So I think that that's one of the added values with VR is that we can break down that barrier to care. We can get people excited. Uh, we can boost their anticipated benefits so that they know if they're going to go into this, there's a good chance they're going to get some. They're going to get some relief. And you also see it, you know, completely different area uh, with people after a stroke and they have to do physical rehab and they've lost function maybe on one side of their body or have significant impairments. Um, or after a motor vehicle accident, people like you or me that drive home and all of a sudden have a car wreck and all of a sudden we can't, we don't have a steady arm anymore or we can't walk uh, without, you know, without balance problems. These are all challenges that people face at various points in their life that to do the rehab to recover function after something like that happens, very tedious very frustrating because you're constantly confronted with what you can't do. So if we do it in VR and we make it game-like and we can give people immediate feedback as to how they're progressing in ways they might not see with their own eyes, but the software can tell them, hey, you moved your arm five degrees further uh, in that session than you did yesterday. No, I didn't see that. Yeah, there it is. Uh, there's the trajectory from, you know, from the software. Uh, 
and all of a sudden now you can make rehab more fun and engaging and maybe do it at home maybe a therapist monitors it but a lot of times in traditional physical and occupational therapy the therapist says hey I want you to do a hundred of these exercises with your hand every day you know it's so frustrating and boring that they might do it the first day they might do half of it the second day by the third day it's screw it I'm gonna use my other arm um, but if you make it game like and you give people hope that they can benefit that we know that we're that there is a science there's motor science that shows if you practice if you push yourself if you have focused engagement um, physically in these kinds of rehab activities you will show benefits you might not become you know Olympic gymnast and you might not even recover all of your function but you can get a lot of it back if you do the sufficient trials and most people don't do it in everyday life but with VR we have the potential to make it more tolerable beyond tolerable make it more engaging and uh, and so that you know this is this is part of the the global hope it's not just about building you know cool games or fun stuff I mean yeah we you know we have that that idea and that vision and that excitement we're like everybody else I, I love playing Robo Recall you know in the Vive you know I mean it's like whoa <laughs> um, but the technology has the capability to do way more than just entertain. And that's what we're trying to do. You know, when I was describing, you know, the diversity of the problems and, and uh, the clinical populations that we're dealing with, it sounds like we're all over the place, but there's a core element here. And that is we are studying how we can use simulation technology like VR um, and how humans engage with it, how they interact with it, how they behave in it, and how we can do something that if they do it in the virtual world a bunch, they're going to show a benefit in the real world. And so even if we're addressing stroke one day, someone with autism the next day, treating somebody with PTSD the next day, there's still this core knowledge base that we're trying to address how humans behave and interact in virtual worlds, virtual simulations, um, and how we can use that to benefit people in healthcare. I like how you're you're so pragmatic about your approach. You know, you, you really, it seems to me, you're really focused on the, the bottom line, which is getting people healthy, and yet you also have this deep futurist and technologist, you know, approach to, to healing. It's a it's a pretty unique skill set. It seems to me somebody who understands both the pragmatism of the uh, getting through the administrative challenges of of making sure that you have your randomized control trials and uh, making sure that the science is sound enough and taking uh, iterative steps from established protocols that are uh, that are proven in medicine to integrate the technology that's coming on board a lot of the technology that's been around for a long time and now is finally coming down to price points where right. it's going to be feasible um, to be a little more distributed um, a question I have around the the simulations is certainly it sounds like simulations in in general whether it's an artificial therapist uh, whether it's a, a virtual reality uh, war zone experience 
they sounds like they're more effective in some cases. Um, so there, there's a an effectiveness question I have, and then there's a scale question. And the scale question kind of comes down to the human interaction. How important is empathy and that bonding with a therapist? And can some of the artificial intelligence and the artificial, we'll call them artificial therapists, but they're virtual mm -hmm. therapists that mm -hmm. you're building, um, how, how effective are those at really reaching a, uh, you know, a, a patient so that it has measurable evidence-based impact? You know, in the end, we always have to look to the clinician as the administrator or the supervisor of a therapy approach. There's no shortcuts and we're not building things that are self-help. The work we do with virtual humans is a little less virtual therapist, but more virtual support agent. Um, you know, something that fills in a gap where there isn't a therapist available and the user might be able to talk to the character and get information about uh, what they're going through, do some light self-assessment and have the agent support them in that, give them advice, do psychoeducation. So at this point, we're not in, certainly not in the business of replacing good clinical skills. It's not, it's not like factory work where someday a robot's going to replace you. I think clinicians will always be in the mix, but they'll have a stronger set of tools mm -hmm. that they can use to administer different treatments and support independent use. Um, you know, so between sessions and any, any real therapy, you try to bring into the mix homework. You have the client do something between sessions that is going to foster their growth, um, help them face a fear, go to a place they've been avoiding, whatever, whatever the therapy or whatever the clinical condition. Now, that, you know, that involves a person on their own doing something, but it's different than if they... They picked up a brochure and, and saw a list of bullet points and said, oh, if you have PTSD, you should do this, this, this. That is devoid of the empathy you talk about. Because in the end, the clinical, the clinical value, I think, comes across by the relationship that you have with the therapist and the trust that you develop and the skills that they have. And I think part of the skills that a good clinician has is knowing what tools are out there to benefit the client. So if VR is used in the therapy session uh, for a purpose and it's scientifically validated, evidence-based, that's a clinician that's made a decision in collaboration with the client to go that way and the patient can benefit. If the clinician um, says, you know what, for homework, I want you to take this Gear VR headset home and I want you to practice your social skills in this VR headset practicing how you're going to uh, be more assertive rather than aggressive in a variety of provocative settings that we've created here for you where people come up and bug you or whatever. It's, it's kind know. of like the compliance challenges that a lot of um, traditional medical doctors face with medication. medication exactly. And, uh, and in, you know, the prescription here is, a, is an exercise and one of the interesting things about, I, I remember a long, long time ago, I helped to build a, a precursor to an electronic medical record uh -oh. for this large um, third-party administrator 
organization in California. It was like they were trying to build a wellness um, program and they wanted an, an intake. So I learned a lot about telemedicine doing that. And one of the challenges was that this uh, older um, aging population for these self-managed um, groups was costing about 80% of the fund and they really wanted to help um, kind of get ahead of the curve and help those people before they spent two million dollars in the hospital for right. whatever right. how many right. days, Preventative right? Medicine. Yeah, and the yeah actually in the process of uh, the business of of healthcare, not not sick care. <laughs> right, exactly um, where it's got to go. Yeah, and um, and so one of the things I I saw was I think it was uh, McKesson or one of these big companies had this pillbox um, that was, would link up, it was had a wireless connector, and then you would order your meds, and I'm sure they're out there now, this was 15 years ago, but the meds you would order, you'd snap them into the pillbox, and then you know the pillbox would register when the pills were popped. Um, and if they weren't, then they, you know, a phone call or a triage right. nurse could. So I kind of see this virtual homework or virtual prescriptions going that way where uh, a psychologist or even a physical therapist you know could have um, um, their they could give their their clients specific homework and then they could monitor um, the stats and say okay well you know they did or they didn't do their homework let's take another course of action that to help this person and, and and potentially with all the connected devices now I mean there's all kinds of biometric connectivity and um, you know mobile messaging is fairly accessible there could be some direct intervention to help motivate them in a um, in a in a positive way whatever that right. is whether it's Absolutely. gamified or, or pers- personal uh, personalized well you know on that on that note we you know we're aiming to develop virtual human companions uh, coaches you know a variety of terms that you can use where maybe now an elderly person has a virtual human that you know they've selected based on uh, their preference they want somebody older younger male female and that character can serve as a prompter or a reminder hey you got to take your meds um, don't forget um, or oh, you have an appointment or on the other hand the the person maybe with mild dementia in the home can ask the virtual human for information that they might be embarrassed to ask their caregiver you know what the heck is my grandkids name I'm, been struggling to try to remember that you know um, where do I have to be tomorrow you know and it's like you know a schedule or a prompter but if that character can then be programmed to become a little more than that maybe you can play checkers with the character or you can begin to um, do reminiscence therapy the character has a knowledge base of the user's biography and can engage them in conversations about their past. We know that this kind of reminiscence therapy has value for promoting mental stimulation in older people. But, you know, to do these things in a way that's not intrusive, not a violation of privacy, not a substitute for real people, but to fill in the gaps where there isn't always going to be a real person uh, there. And, you know, I mean, we're getting into the the dark matter, electric dreams uh, domain now. I've just been watching Electric Dreams oh, yeah. uh, 
which is quite compelling. And, you know, these, these present dystopian views of uh, futures, and certainly anybody living in any age, when they were to, when, if they were to go into the future, they'd probably be shocked at how people change, you know, and because they didn't grow with it, you know. But there's also benefits to things in the future, but sometimes things go awry. And so at the same time, we're doing these things for pro-social purpose. Always going to be vigilant. Are we diminishing our humanity? Are we taking away something that should only be delivered by a real person? At this point, though, when I look at it, and I look in my lifetime, and, you know, I'm, I'm in my 60s, so, you know, I'm... I'm thinking ahead, things I develop for maybe an elderly population, I might be developing for myself in 10, 15 <laughs> years. I would like that virtual companion. I would like to have, you know, someone that's not a nag, and not anybody I have to be embarrassed, you know, if I ask my wife, where the hell did I put my glasses? You know, she's going to think, oh, shit, he's got the Alzheimer's kicking in, you know. <laughs> I, you know, so then maybe I just run around the house for two hours looking for my glasses rather than ask her. So, you know, I think there's a place for these things as long as we're, we're vigilant about when it goes too far. And maybe what I think might be too far might be, you know, nothing to somebody born, you know, 30 years from now and what they think is too far. But, you know, that's their life and their age, you know. And, you know, you can't control everything, but you can look to needs that exist now and try to address them and hope that, you know, in the course of addressing these needs, you're not creating something that's going to, you know, decimate humanity, you know, Skynet-wise in the future. Yeah, I don't, I don't see the dystopian or the utopian future. I see some, you know, middle ground as, as kind of, it's always it's been human nature for millennia. I don't see that, that changing. I am curious about the path forward to virtual humans because uh, we mentioned you mentioned that you're doing uh, some facial recognition and emotional validation stuff, which is pretty cutting edge to to have a um, it would be be basically having a video camera on a on a patient's uh, face to get some of the emotional quality and then classify the emotionality of facial expressions and then take some of that emotionality insight, put it into your virtual human so that they can mirror, show empathy, um, engage, you know, have a deeper level of engagement and potentially help classify through a series of, of very pointed questions, you know, or decision tree type questions, mm -hmm. what the actual um, challenge the patient is going through, you know, and, and a, a clinician might go through a series of questions that's sort of more standardized and um, it's a very human activity to read body emotion uh, and and I'm curious about your thoughts on how a machine might be able to um, or program might be able to do that again maybe not as well as a human maybe better than a human or maybe just augmented maybe as a, mm -hmm. an additional data point for a human therapist you know, you know I, th I think that um, if you're looking at diagnostics clinicians ask questions they listen to the answer for content they observe the patient or the client in terms of their facial expression the tone of their voice 
um, how elaborative or unelaborative or over-elaborative they are in their expression, um, what their body posture is. Um, you know, and clinicians do this to greater or lesser degrees. And, and what that involves, or the reason for that is because there are multiple sources of information that you can get from a person. There's, actually, there's only three, really. You can, you can get the content of what they say, whether it's a self-report checklist or direct answers to questions. You can look at what their heart rate, their skin conductance, their respiration, their EEG, their blood cortisol levels are telling you. So what's going on inside the body? And the third thing is behavior. And some clinicians are real astute observers of human behaviors. Others don't really pay that much attention. They just take literally the content. So what we're trying to do is to, you know, basically build an automated system that addresses that third leg of the assessment stool. You've got self-report, you've got physiology, and now quantify, capturing and quantifying behavior, and then making you're taking that behavior, making predictions about what it means. Uh, when you ask someone a question, if they, I mean, or you ask someone a question and they look down and they frown and they hesitate and their vocal pattern becomes flat. Well, that's data. Um, you know, that tells you something. Um, now, the challenge is sometimes people want to uh, manage the impression that they generate. You know, sometimes people want to come in and say, I'm a mess, help me, please. Okay. But a lot of times people say, I don't have a problem. My wife made me come here for therapy. You know, um, okay, well, we can talk a little further and everything. So people want to manage their impression and if we can detect things in their behavior that give us a little more clinical insight into um, what they're going through, maybe we can help them better. And can we do that at some level with virtual human interviewers whereby the person isn't so concerned about the impression they make on this embodied piece of software? Um, and this is what they're, I'm, I'm leading towards um, some research that we've done where we actually show this empirically that when we build clinical interviewers that are virtual humans, not only can we get really good predictions as to their psychological state, uh, that, you know, we, we found uh, common behaviors, kind of like lie detection, but looking at user state. Uh, in a more comprehensive way. We can detect vocal patterns that might be indicative of someone who's depressed or body posture that indicates depression or um, anxious movement or anxious speech. Or, you know, not what someone says, but how they say it. Well, we can do that, but we can also do it with a virtual human where there's no risk, there's no shame. And what we find is that when people interact with these virtual humans, um, and they're told, this is just software. There's nobody in the loop. As opposed to an, another group, a randomized group, that is told, um, there's a human in the loop. It's a, an avatar you're talking to. There's a guy in the other room, you know, running, hitting buttons and picking utterances and moving levers, whatever, to move the body. Um, you find that they reveal less information, personal information, self-disclosed less personal information when it's a real person in the loop. They uh, have more fear of shame, guilt, 
you know, worry about what the person is going to think of them. They reveal less depressive or sad events, and um, and and it's a more constrained interaction as opposed to when it's just software. I don't give a, a, a crap. Uh, you know, the the software is not judging me. It's you know, it's asking me questions. We found this with returning service members coming back from Afghanistan, where when they come back, they have to fill out a checklist of behavioral health and medical symptoms, you know, and right as soon as they land, you know, back on in stateside, you know, it's called the post-deployment health assessment. And these folks, you know, they don't want to reveal that they're having a problem. So they just go through this checklist. No, 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 no. I don't have any of these problems. Well, we found we did that we got that data but we also gave them the checklist in an anonymous form it wasn't going to be under military record they fill it out nobody was going to see it it was going to be data points in a computer they still filled it out no 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 but when they went on later to interact with the virtual human this character we call ellie and she asked these same questions but in a conversational mode we found significantly more endorsement of symptoms. So let's take a simple one, like, you know, on the checklist it says, have you had alterations in your sleep in the last 30 days? No. Well, Ellie talks to you for a bit, builds some rapport, and then she goes, hey, how's your sleeping been lately? And all of a sudden you hear people say, well, you know, since I've been back, um, I have been, I've been waking up a lot at night. And sometimes I'm having dreams about some stuff I saw on my deployment. It's like, okay, and Ellie might follow up on that and say, would you like to tell me a little more about the kinds of things that you have in these dreams? And you get follow-on information now that you've cracked the shell a little bit. But, you know, the service members again said the same thing. I felt more comfortable talking to this piece of software in a, an attractive form as a virtual agent, um, very uh, nurturing, compelling form, I would say. Um, and uh, I didn't feel judged. And so maybe that's, you know, we, we've got to look for what's the sweet spot for these things to make it so that, uh, you know, we can get information from people that allow us to inform a diagnosis or develop a treatment plan or be able to follow up with a little more insight into who they are as a person rather than checking off a box uh, on a symptom checklist. So. You know, but admittedly, you, this could all go the other way. This could become, you know, every time you talk to anybody on Skype, you know, somebody could be monitoring your facial expression or, you know, your, the inflection of your voice and get some insight to sell you something when you go on another website or, or to track down, you know, some issue you have. I, you know, we have to be vigilant. We have to always give people awareness that they may be being analyzed. Um, and that uh, they can opt out of it at any time. Yeah. It feels like the technology is going to develop regardless, right? So either either people are going to develop it in the psychological framework of assisting and or they're going to develop it in you know, ways to sell people stuff and or manipulate. Um, yep. And, you know, it's... It's like uh, someone said, it's like a knife, you know, you can use it to perform surgery, you can kill somebody. Like, it's like, it's the technology. Fire can keep you warm or Eat. burn the hell out of you. Exactly. You know, it's, <laughs> everything has a dual, you know, double-edged sword, you know. Yeah, so it's how we're, how we're applying it, and I feel like, um, you know, 
people like you and your colleagues and um, I'm trying to to be on the side of doing what feels good in in a way that helps people um, be more empowered yeah. uh, to make choice in their yeah. life and uh, have have a greater sense of happiness uh, you know in general and health what you know which is kind of a tough thing to pinpoint health but there's some good metrics around what we it's, think yeah, of as health hard, right it's, it's, hard, it's hard to measure <laughs> happiness you know <laughs> just add money no nope, that doesn't that work do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, have a lot of good friends well that, that maybe that's a better one uh, you know um, yeah you know I, I think that uh, you know we have such we live in such a great time. We, we won the lottery, you know, when you think about it. We could have been born 200 years ago and died 15 years ago of cholera or, you know, whatever, or, you know, been fighting wars with clubs or whatever it is. We're living in really good times right now, and it, it's incumbent upon us to do the best by that, by the opportunity given to us. And, you know, this is what gets me excited about the field now is I see people in different groups working towards developing sort of codes around this stuff. Like, for example, um, IEEE, you know, the, uh, the Engineering Society, they put together um, a, a giant um, ethics um, set of guidelines came out in December uh, for mixed reality and AI. Um, I was on the uh, on the mixed reality committee and came up with some some of the guidelines for clinical use of these technologies. But people are thinking about this stuff and putting out their best ethical thoughts for how to, you know, what to watch out for, how to use it, what might not be such a good thing to do, or, or how what we have to measure to determine that. It, it feels to me, from my my limited business experience, that. Uh, Industry always precedes regulation, and um, yeah. that market economics work faster than the regulatory agencies do. And with the technologies developing at such an incredible compounding speed, you know, like, well, I, I believe that technology's uh, development is increasing, right? Um, cheaper, faster products, and um, with that happening, you know, the regulatory agencies are, are going to have a hard time keeping up with their very uh, human process of democracy, which is, is great, you know, it's gl I'm glad that that's in place. It's going to be interesting to see as these technologies, you know, <laughs> like it took uh, how many years before the, uh, the text texting while you drive law came out, right? And the, the data is really clear. It's texting while you drive is as dangerous as drinking, drinking while you drive, and you know it's or more. And and uh, and the regulation came out, but who you know, I I don't see many tickets issued for that yet. So it's going to be interesting when augmented reality glasses come out, for example, and you have you know, your your leap, uh, you know, magic leap guys yep. out there, and you've got other you know Google and. Oculus, those guys in Microsoft are all developing cheaper augmented reality headsets that are going to be more portable. Yep. So you're going to see people driving around not in their self-driving Teslas with these headsets on, and there's going to be no regulation around it. Um, so it's it's fascinating to me to see 
it's it just a you know it's not good or bad it just sort of, it right. is right. and right. it's um, interesting to witness and um, my hope is that you know that we can um, as a as a species humans help um, you know bring more awareness to the impact that this has on our on our livelihoods and those around us yeah yep. so yep. what do you see back to the like fun futurist technology uh, put our, our future speaking of future goggles put our, our augmented reality future goggles on what do we see coming up we've got um, virtual humans like rich biometric data um, distributed um, cheaper hardware that's coming out and uh, industries that are gonna have to adopt this technology basically because they're not going to flourish unless they do uh, every industry is really going to be disrupted by this technology yes but, um, specifically the, the healthcare industry so so what do you see is kind of like the really interesting future futurist sort of things that are going to come out well I think you know all the points that you just made are, are things that are just going to grow and get better and uh, and provide us with new opportunities um, I think you know, aside from the healthcare industry, I think how we educate people. I think learning is going to be one of the biggest unsung uh, beneficiaries of all this. Uh, you know, think of children being able to really visualize something that they just don't, don't have a capacity and a teacher doesn't have a capacity to draw on a chalkboard or, the, or a whiteboard now. Um, uh, you know, like the molecular structure, of, you know, uh, you know, oxygen, you know, that that's a, that's something that children don't have a good intuitive grasp on early on. But perhaps 3D visualization provides people with a better way of seeing the world in things that are that are <laughs> typically unseen. Um, we have some background music here. <laughs> I hope it doesn't it's interfere with this. Uh, but. Um, you know, I see education, but lifelong learning, not just with kids. I think with kids, we can do tremendous things. We can give people uh, experiences they could never have. We can give them visualizations that they that initially can't visualize for themselves, but now make it clear and help them to grow that kind of imagination. Um, you know, I... I, I I wish I had some magic view of the next 40 years other than saying the usual stuff. AI is going to help support us, computer graphics are going to get better, going to give us uh, deeper, richer experiences, we're going to have better shared experiences with people, um, we're going to do all the sensing uh, and biometrics in ways that are going to provide people with useful information about themselves. or. Um, to clinicians that can monitor or software that can monitor their health and intervene early. You know, it was a funny thing um, with, um, I read a, a, an article, not, I haven't looked up the source data, but about people that go on Google and search for back pain and then within a month go on Google and search for um, th issues about indigestion. And it turns out that that those are people that have a high uh, high propensity that they may actually have pancreatic cancer, back pain and indigestion. And so is Google responsible to give them a heads up that 
based on your search, there mm. might be some mm. predictions here that might be hard to, to accept, but you might want to get this checked out. And so, you know, I'm willing to give up a little bit to have that kind of freedom, but not a lot of people don't want that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you see a lot of people that, uh, you know, put masking tape over their webcam on their laptop because, you know, you never know who's going to watch you. Well, if I'm doing anything bad, I'll close my laptop, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> or I'll put the tape on at that point. But uh, so I'm pretty open about that stuff. Um, but, you know, the balance of privacy and the vision of giving people emotionally evocative experiences that make them more equipped to be able to deal with uh, the challenges they face in everyday life. Giving people better, giving them opportunities to understand empathy, put themselves in other people's shoes. At the, that's at the core, I think, of human transaction in a more ethical and more civilized fashion. You know, um, understanding that, that people that, you know, that come from Africa or come from Haiti don't come from shithole countries. They come from countries that have a different experience than ours, and those people are as valid as, as anyone that grew up in the United States, and that we need to be a more open society. Maybe, maybe if Donald Trump uh, has a couple of really good empathy-building VR experiences, we'd have a different <laughs> presidency at this point in time. And I know you're going to cut that, but uh, maybe not. It's, you know, I, I couldn't resist it. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're all humans. We're all entitled to our perspectives. Yeah, I mean, it's part of what makes makes the world go. And I think one of the marks of, for me, one of the marks of a of a more mature human is their ability to see many perspectives at the same time and hold them all as valid. Yep. Which is yep. more more accepting and comes with, I think. Or at least understand experience. why you make the choice that you make for having your perspective. You know that you know. Look at I'm in it for the money or. I'm in it for the meaning, which is, you know. Or both. Yeah, or both. <laughs> and, and, that's, and you're lucky if you can do that. <laughs> have meaning and, you know, yeah. be able to have, make a little money at the same time. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm, <clears throat> I'm really excited about your perspective on the industry because I, I haven't met anybody else who has such a, a deep passion for for what you do, I mean, you're clearly you've dedicated your life to this, and uh, and just such a broad knowledge of what's happening in the space. And maybe you can list off some some companies in the private sector that are adopting this technology and putting it out into um, you know um, maybe areas that aren't that don't require regulatory um, oversight. So I know that VR is used, for example, in overcoming um, speech, you know, giving giving talks in public settings, fear of heights. Um, there's, a, there's some kind of apps out there that are uh, readily available um, to guide people through those. Um, and then it's used in, in interview, you know, um, mock interviews for employment opportunities. And what are some of the companies you think are doing um, some of the most interesting uh, more advanced work in that in the private sector I think there's you know what we've seen in the last two years is the emergence of VR AR mixed reality startups um, we've seen more in the last two years than in the previous 20 
and that's a sign that people are energized also it's a sign that people see they can make money at it but I see a lot of companies emerging in the mental health space and they are focused on wellness uh, many of them there there are companies you know that have been around for a while like for example virtually better uh, that has been doing scientifically validated uh, exposure therapy systems for phobias and for addiction and uh, for learning and social interaction with children. They've done a wide range of applications. But there's also startups like a company called Sias that comes out of Spain that's really, um, you know, tried to leverage the, the knowledge base and build, build these kinds of apps at a low cost, uh, widely distributable. Um, there, I, I can't even begin to list all the different companies. Cognitive Leap, uh, Cleavr, um, oh Jesus, there's, there's, there's so many of them. I almost feel guilty mentioning <laughs> a few because <laughs> there ones that pop into my head are people I know that are my friends. I don't want to be biased here. Um, but also, we're seeing the same thing with chatbots and with virtual human. I mean, this is the big explosion, and it will go for the next few years. Um, where the um, company called Hia Human Interface Agents uh, is one that's emerging on the scene. All the sensing companies, uh, Affectiva, you know, there's, there's all these companies that are popping up. Um, and, you know, their motive, of course, is to make money. But if we can have these companies make money while fulfilling a good human purpose, that's a good thing. Some companies are more ethical than others. Um, you know, uh, what I can say about Magic Leap is that they have a very strong ethic about it, developing their system around pro-social uses beyond just gaming and entertainment. They want to make it so that, uh, you know, education can be enhanced, medicine can be enhanced, um, you know, social interaction can be enhanced. I think, you know, their view is that eventually these glasses will replace your cell phone. It'll have all the function of a cell phone, but then more for a benefit. And I see companies that come from that ethical perspective um, as providing the potential for great value. Now, um, you know, I don't want to be judgmental. But it, it is a different ball game focusing on pro-social than it is on gaming. Gaming, you build a cool game, no matter what's in that game, whether it's, you know, whether it's a sports game or it's Grand Theft Auto, it's about making money and make, giving people an outlet. Well, when it comes to education and healthcare and these pro-social apps, it's, uh, you got a higher calling, you know. Number one, you got to understand what it is that you're trying to build for people and how you measure any gains. And you got to make sure that your claims for those things um, you know, have some validity and are not just, you know, junk science or snake oil or any of that stuff. So we're, we're, we're traversing different worlds here. There's different motivations for people to drive technological advancements. There's going to be good and there's going to be bad. Um, but in the end, I think we will end up seeing a more positive world by having these kinds of technology um, enhancements that make us learn better, help us maintain our wellness, um, help us to become better people in how we interact with each other, a better understanding of each other. 
these are all things that, uh, you know, the, these are the pillars of civilization. I mean, we can go back, uh, you know, 500 years and it's survival of the fittest. You know, I don't think, I think civilization's an antidote to that. It's a way that even if you're not the, the, the most fittest guy on the block, you can still, you know, lead a rich self you know, a rich life and, and be fulfilled and find meaning and contribute to society. So, you know, I, I sound like, I, I think I'm sounding like I'm wandering around here, but I, I have no, this. No, it's a definitely, it's a social, I mean, you know, I, I, we, we're in the realm of social good and social evil, and if good and evil is even, you know, or even paradigms we want to use, but um, the fabric of society, and this is a really this technology these technologies are are shifting and shaping how human consciousness and civilizations interact i mean the machine age totally transformed how civilizations interact and then the you know computing age and now the age of internet and next is going to be the age of spatial computing and then it'll be some other level of connected yep. consciousness and who knows what that's going to look like yeah, yet, right, you right. know? Let's um, not talk about the singularity uh, here. Well, I mean, you know, who knows? <laughs> but, but, you, you know, yep. one could tra make a trajectory in any direction, and that's singularity, one one mind. In some ways, you know, humans are, we're, we are one organism on this giant, on this giant globe, if we look out, you know? We're, we're having a global impact as a species, and... Um, yeah. What's neat is there's continuity. Uh, you know, I, I remember a guy at a lecture talking about, you know, think about 100 years from now, and he goes, all new people. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and it's like, it hit me at that moment. It's like, yeah, everybody's alive right now. Most of them are not going to be here 100 years from now. But the continuity of knowledge and of civilization evolves, you know, and grows and and it gets passed on and communicates. That's, that's, you know, what some people believe may differentiate the human brain from, uh, you know, other organisms on a planet that we pass on acquired knowledge, uh, not just instinctual knowledge. Uh, you know, let's hope we pass it on in a good way and uh, we make it better as we move forward. It seems like virtual reality, as a specific tool, virtual reality has the capacity for just like social media and cell phones, you can they can cause more isolation and than connectivity. So I know that several people I've talked to have asked, you know, how can we make virtual reality more interactive? How can we increase the connectivity of of communities? Because it seems like all these technologies and the wealth. Another person I talked to. Um, mentioned that you know this is the first time or was it four or five hundred years ago was the first time that a human could operate completely independent of their tribe of their community right. of their civilization because right. they had tools and resources and uh to do so and but this ancient animal that you know the, the human um maybe the human psyche even wasn't hasn't he caught up to living <laughs> in isolation and uh, and so how can we potentially weave in either tools that help the humans be happier in isolation or tools that help them be more connected 
uh, and and collective. I'm, I prefer the second, the connectivity, but, mm -hmm. you know, both frameworks are valid, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, we, you know, you, you give people choice and you give people opportunities to experiment with, you know, what it is that they're best suited for. You know, the, the connectivity thing, sometimes I worry about it from the perspective of, uh, you know, my old days of watching, you know, Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> back when the Borg were the bad guys, you know, mm. they were the shared hive mind and everybody was connected. And if you pulled a Borg away from the collective, they felt empty. They missed the voices, uh -huh. you know, they were going through connectivity withdrawal. <laughs> and the scary thing is sometimes I feel that way if I don't have my phone <laughs> or uh -huh. I, don't, I don't have an internet connection or, or whatever. Um, but in the end, all the whining about how many emails I have to deal with and everything else, I think it's more than amply uh, made up for by the richness of the web of people I know and the content that's available to me and the knowledge that is easily accessible. And, uh, you know, in VR, I think we will create shared experiential worlds beyond, you know, Second Life and, and some of the things that are, that are allegedly uh, coming online soon in that area. We'll really have good connected shared experiences. And, uh, and, and just like an email listserv, which blew my mind in 1995 when I got <laughs> out my first one and I realized there were people all over the world that had the same interest in this rock band from the 70s that I thought no one knew about. And all of a sudden, a community evolves from email conversation. I think new communities will evolve. And if I can interact with people from other countries that I've never been to and have some shared goal or some structured way of interacting, I may find out that in reality, we're more similar than we're different. And if that is the net gain from all this stuff, that may be the solution to a lot of the problems that you know we currently see on a global level that you know at our core humans have more in common than than our cultures uh, in, you know instill differences um, well you know I, I, I agree with you that I think VR um, can be a facilitator for better connectivity uh, it's just still technical challenges you know in the end I mean eventually just like taking a photograph, I will have a virtual avatar that, you know, that represents me, you know, whether it's, you know, like in um, Ready Player One or, or you know, whatever mm -hmm. vision. And people are already doing it. There's a fellow I work with, Ari Shapiro, who built a low-cost system, built a virtual representation fully rigged of me in like 10 minutes. Amazing. You know? And I can pop that into a virtual world. And I've, now we've got a, a Rococo suit. I can animate it, virtual puppetry, uh -huh. and eventually that character will be able to inflect from my facial expression with cameras or sensors of some type, my vocal, uh, uh, you know, parameters, be able to animate that character's facial expression to represent how I'm feeling and while I interact with people. I mean, that's a big challenge. We're in a headset, you know, you can't capture the eyes unless you've got some kind of a sensor in the headset. So building a character that represents you in a virtual world while you're wearing a headset, you've got some facial challenges, but there's ways around it, and people are doing that. Work.
can eventually, you know, I'll be able to, we'll be able to do this podcast next time. <laughs> you know, really feel like we're in the same place, but uh, yeah, you know, you're up where you live, and I'm here. Yeah, potentially in a, a holographic environment without yeah. without wearing any uh, any machinery. Who knows? Step yep. into the hollow chamber. Yep. Uh, yeah. You know, one area I'm really excited about is with the augmented reality, not just for healthcare, but for helping people make informed decisions as they go through life and. Uh, there's a group at the, this Dutch VR Days event last year that uh, was putting together ideas and we're all brainstorming and they came up with a concept called augmented morality. And <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's great. It. And it's so you walk into a mall or any area where there's commercial logos mm. anywhere mm. and the system pops, catches that logo and then pops up on one side of the screen you know, their carbon footprint, what political campaigns they donate to, uh, where do they donate charity money to, do they <laughs> donate charity money, you know, what's their positions on various, uh, you know, things. And all of a sudden, now you've got, you've got information that's going to govern your buying decisions mm -hmm. that could change the world. I mean, I certainly will not, never buy at Hobby Lobby. In my life, uh, after the what I consider to be reprehensible, um, but I do love shopping at Costco because I think they they provide uh, you know good insurance for their employees and create a good work environment. Well, I know that from hearing it on the news, but there's plenty of companies walking down that street over there that I have no clue where they came from, what they do, and. By having that become more transparent, mm. there, I think it will boost the need for social responsibility on a corporate level. It could change things dramatically. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe neo-Nazis will look for the places that contribute to reprehensible causes, and that's where they'll shop. <laughs> and you know, maybe it'll be like Fox News, MSNBC endorsed uh, <laughs> shopping decisions. <laughs> Hard to say. Yeah, the <clears throat> the decision-making process for humans yeah. is. But there are objective yeah, but, bits of information <clears throat> that, that exist that yeah, I think can be helpful in how you make your decisions in life that maybe could move the world in a, uh, in a more positive direction. Hmm. Well, any final closing thoughts on the future of VR in healthcare? My final thought is, is that... Um, you know, psychology, specifically my area, been around for 125, 150 years, you know, as a real science where people really studied, you know, human behavior, how humans interact and behave in the real world. Um, well, now we've got the virtual world. And I think it's going to take maybe not 125, 150 years, but it's going to take a little bit of time before we fully get a handle on understanding how humans behave and interact in virtual worlds and then leveraging that in ways that make it make it more meaningful for them in the real world that make it more healthy for them in the real world that make general social interaction <laughs> more um, more valid and meaningful and so um, I look forward to a bright future. You know, the people that are just coming up right now in their 20s, you got, you got a hell of a ride ahead of you. Um, you know, I've got another good 20, 30 years, hopefully, in me. Uh, I hope I get to see a lot of it. But I think 
you know, take it by the by the horns and, and use it for good. Make a difference. Uh, change the world. Love it. Thank you very much. Skip Rizzo, the godfather of virtual reality for healing. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us at Conscious Founders. You can always check out the latest episode, consciousfounders.org. If you would like to learn more about Skip and his work, you can Google him, Skip Rizzo, R-I-Z-Z-O. You can also go to their website. It's medvr.ict.usc.edu. That's medvr.ict.usc.edu. And I've got some links to their site as well as his YouTube channel and other goodies on our website. As always, stay healthy.